Well, good morning and welcome to Hope. I'm Pastor Trevor. Uh, thank you for, I'm glad I should say, and thank you for coming as well. And for those of you who are joining us online, glad you could be here this morning. I hope you are hungry for God's Word. Our primary passage only has seven verses, but we will be scouring the pages of His Holy Word, looking for wisdom and understanding and how we ought to fight for our souls. Before we dive in, let's go to our Father in prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for gathering us together this morning where we can sing praises and we can look upon your majesty, gaze upon your glory. And Father, we would ask that you would help us to hear your word this morning, that the Spirit would soften our souls and our hearts, that you would help us to stay focused this morning, that you help us not to be distracted, that you would help us to lay down our burdens, our anxieties, our fears, our traumas, and to just focus upon you and your good news, and that we would be edified, equipped, and sanctified in the process, Father, so that you may be glorified. We ask this, Father, not just only for us here, I hope, but for all churches in the Cooley region around the world who are faithful to your word so that your kingdom may grow, your church may be built, and your name would be exalted above all names. We ask this, Father, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Depression, anxiety, fear, loneliness, guilt, shame, sexual addictions, drug addictions, food addictions, eating disorders, and the list goes on. Along with the various sins that mark our lives, and of course, let's not forget the greatest one of them all, death. Things that happen to all people in a fallen world. But what about those who know Christ? I think we all understand the necessity of death, but what about those other things that I listed that can, one, hasten death to us or can rob the peace we ought to have when we do face death? Why do we who believe still experience these things? Maybe not all of them, but we still experience them in varying degrees and various manners. And let's not pretend that we don't experience them as if they are foreign to the believer. To do so would be like pretending that we don't sin. But why, though? Why do we struggle against such things if we have been set free by the Son? Because we are still in our fallen flesh and have not yet received our glorified bodies, which will not occur until our King, Jesus, returns and makes all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. But until that time, we struggle not only against our own flesh, which we must crucify daily, but we also struggle against the evils of this world the powers and the principalities, namely the devil and his angels, who use all of these things to get us to take our eyes off of Christ, to get us to doubt our faith. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes these things afflict us because we do lose faith, especially the ones that are born out of discontent. But some of them are simply just byproducts of a fallen world. We exist during a period of history of which a cosmic spiritual war is being waged. And we live on the front lines of that war. Though the outcome of the war has already been determined for God's glory, the end of the hostilities has not ceased. And the enemy is constantly on the prowl, looking for opportunities to devour Christ's beloved. So, we must be on our guard. We must know how to fight, so that when the heat of the battle bears down on us, we will remain faithful and hold fast to our confession 
And in doing so, we will see our deliverance fulfilled by the power of Christ. So what does this look like? Thankfully, through God's word, we have been given an example of which we may draw endurance and encouragement from in our passage this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 15 through 22. And if you have not already opened there, go ahead and turn there. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles scattered throughout underneath the seats. David, as most of you know, is a giant slayer. Though he wasn't the only one to slay a giant, and at one point David himself was almost killed by a giant. In all these instances, though, it wasn't David's wisdom, it wasn't David's might that delivered him, it was his faith in Yahweh. Today, we will read of some of these giants, but before we do, let us consider the first and most prominent giant that David killed, Goliath. In David's time, the Philistines sought to kill David and God's people. In 1 Samuel 17, we see this, um, especially so, with David and Goliath. The Philistines come to do battle against Israel, and Goliath offers Israel an opportunity. Let's do some one-on-one fighting, and the winner will determine the outcome. But all of Israel, to include King Saul, they were afraid of this giant of a man. So Goliath continued to taunt Israel and blaspheme God's holy name. So God sent a deliverer, a rescuer, his anointed one to fight Goliath, and that was David, when he was much younger, probably as a teenager. David, through faith in Yahweh, was able to deliver God's people from their greatest opponents. It is also in 1 Samuel 17, in this instance, that we first witness how David was a type of Christ, a shadow of the true Christ to come. For just as David was a rescuer for God's people by representing them on the battlefield and gaining victory, so Jesus Christ represented his people on the cross as he conquered death for us on our behalf, for we, will, for we were unable to do so. Likewise, in these seven verses before us, we will see how David's fighting is an example of the life of Christ and what it can teach of us of how we ought to live. We'll learn that like David, as well as Jesus, we are marked, yet we are not alone. And if we are faithful, we will be delivered, we will be delivered even through death. Now let us read our passage and deal briefly with two matters of the text, and then we will dive in. Again, Second Samuel chapter 21, starting verse 15 through verse 22. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was war against the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachah the Hishathite struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jerai Oregon, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shammai, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So here, near the end of 2 Samuel, David is back at it with his well-known enemy, the Philistines. And there are some key fighters of the Philistines listed in this passage, and all of them were descended from the giants. Well, what line of giants is the text specifically referring to? 
Do you recall the giants of Numbers 13 and 14? When the 12 spies were sent out to spy on the land, and when they came back, 10 of the 12 spies came back with a bad report. In Numbers 13.33, they spoke of seeing men descended from the Nephilim of Genesis 6, tall people called the Anakites or the Anakim. These giants are what caused the people to fear and to lack faith in Yahweh, except for Joshua and Caleb. As such, the other ten spies, because of the lack of faith, because they feared these giants, they died of a plague. And then the generation that lived in Egypt at the time of the Exodus, when they were delivered from the bondage of Pharaoh, they would not be permitted to enter into the promised land. The giants in our text come from the city of Gath, and we know from Joshua eleven twenty two that the survivors of the Anakim dwelt in three cities belonging to the Philistines, which includes the one associated with Goliath and the four descendants in our text today, the city of Gath. So how big were these giants? Well, it depends on your source. If we're using Goliath as our reference point, because he's the only one that we have measurements for, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint have Goliath at 6'6", at six, six, right? So Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's early 1st century A.D., right? So that's, that's much older than the Masoretic text, which is more, uh, 600 to 800 A.D. So the Masoretic text has Goliath at 9'6". Now, either way, these are big guys, right? 6'6 six, six on the battlefield versus 9'6. To me, it's a big dude. Once you get past six feet, I mean, you're dealing with a, a tall, strong guy, especially since the spear of Ishbi Banab weighed 300 shekels. A shekel is about 11 grams, so this is just over seven pounds. That's not necessarily unusual for a spear, but it is on the heavy end of a spear, and to use that in combat would require a man of good strength. So these are, these are big dudes, and these are big dudes that are fighting and trained in combat. Now, let's talk about verse 19, where someone who is not named David, but yet is also a Bethlehemite, killed a man named Goliath. Is this a contradiction in Scripture? It is possible that this verse was corrupted at some point in time by a mistake made by a pre-Christian era copyist, where 1 Chronicles 25 maintains the accurate information for us, where First uh, Chronicles says, There was again war of the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jer, struck down Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So very similar. But yet, this verse in Chronicles simply could be an early attempt to deal with what was an apparent contradiction, as Lami is part of the Hebrew word for Bethlehemite. So in the Hebrew, both of these verses are still very uh, similar. There are also three other possibilities that exist that could explain verse 19. One is that Elhanan is an alternate name for David, while David is his royal name. Elhanan is his actual family name, and as such, Jair would be another name for Jesse. Of course, this possibility would also require these series of events not to be in any kind of chronological order, because 1 Samuel 17 happened when Saul was king, not when David was king. Another is that Goliath could actually just be a title and not a personal name. And finally, there simply could be two fighters in the city of Gath named Goliath. That's a possibility. Though we may not be 100% confident in how to explain this apparent contradiction, doesn't mean that it is, 
The point remains, David and his men, they fought notorious men who were descended from the line of giants, and they fell by the hand of David. Why were these giants, though, why were they pursuing David and his men? Why was David marked for death by them? Why would Ishbi Banab be pursuing David? Well, because David is king. He is the Lord's anointed. To slay him would to be to extinguish the light, the lamp of Israel, which represents the hope, the symbol of God's covenantal faithfulness, his kessed love for Israel. It is why after this incident that David's men agree that he should not come out with them anymore, lest he quenches the lamp of Israel. If this incident occurred before chapter 11, this could be the incident that led to David not going out in the springtime when kings do battle and to set the stage for Bathsheba. David was also targeted, though, because he carried out God's justice and rule in the promised land which the Philistines occupied. This is a primary and key function of the Lord's anointed, to practice righteousness and to execute justice. And the Philistines were not a fan of God's justice and God's righteousness, especially in their land. Likewise, the son of David, Jesus, was targeted for the same reason. Just as the Philistines hated David, the world hated his son, Jesus Christ. And the world still does so today. For Jesus was ordained to be king. And like David, he was anointed to execute justice and righteousness among his people and against his enemies. Jeremiah 23.5 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. As such, those of the world, those who are children of wrath, children of darkness, they will and they do reject Jesus, just as the Philistines rejected David. And as such, Jesus was marked for death, for the world hates Jesus. Now, does that sound odd to you? That the world, that society today, hates Jesus. I wouldn't blame you if you thought, well, boy, that sounds a little off. I mean, because it does sound off. How can anyone, how can society hate Jesus? And the world regularly talks about Jesus as if he is their best friend and how everyone needs to be just like Jesus and love everyone without condition. But that's not the real Jesus, is it? The real Jesus, the world rejects. It's why the world rejects his word and what it teaches and why so many cannot stand to hear it. They hate him, they hate Jesus, because what he hates they love, namely their sin. In John 7, 7, Jesus tells his brothers why the world hates him. And it's the same reason they, the world hates him today. Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Meaning the brothers of Jesus, his half-brothers to be precise, belonged to the world, thus could not be hated by the world. But not so with Jesus, because Jesus did not belong to this world. Not only does he not belong to this world, but Jesus points out the sin, the evil of this world. And he called people to repentance. In his love, out of his righteousness and out of his justice, he confronted sin, honestly, directly, in the world hated him for it, and sought to kill him. For the world did not want to submit to his rule, to his lordship. And please, 
Please understand this. It is in love. It is an act of love to proclaim God's word faithfully. It is an act of love to call out the sin of others. We do not preach God's word here, I hope, to make people comfortable as they go to hell. And we do not preach with the intention that there is always tomorrow. Thus, we can ease people into the truths of of Scripture. That That methodology is foreign to Scripture completely. Scripture says preach the word urgently. Preach it now, for you don't know what tomorrow brings. You don't know what today brings. So the idea that we can just ease people into the truths of Scripture, that's the strategy of the devil. And we should have nothing to do with it. We preach his word here, I hope, so that people might be holy by his good grace. And in that holiness, find abundant life that is everlasting. Those who love their sin, they will hate this kind of preaching. And they will find somebody else to scratch their itching ears. Whereas those who hate their sin, they will eat it up and they will give glory to God. For those who hate their sin hate it because it keeps them from knowing God, as we are called to know God. And to know God is to know life. To know God is to know joy, to know peace. You cannot find the joy of God anywhere else but in the knowledge of who he is. And if you're in sin, you will not know God. Christ did not die for our sin simply so that we may avoid hell. Right? We always get caught up in the destinations. If Christ died on the cross, so I'm not going to hell anymore. That's the whole reason he died on the cross. No, Christ died for our sin so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, thus allowing us to live righteously prior to our arrival into the, the kingdom and into the heaven, that we may live righteously so that we can know the triune God now in this fallen world in ways that are not possible while we are enslaved, while we are in bondage to sin. And when we live righteously, it will bring hatred upon us. If we do find ourselves being hated by the world, be encouraged knowing that I hated our Lord and Savior first. John 15, 18, Jesus in the upper room discourse on the night that he's betrayed. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Though Jesus made the world, right, John 1, though Jesus made the world, the world refused to know him, to accept him. But those who do believe in him are given eternal life. And in doing so, when you believe in Christ faithfully, you become marked for death. For once you believe in Christ, you no longer belong to the world. John 15, 19, Jesus says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Just as the Philistines hated David because God had anointed him. David had no saying in his anointing. God came to David and anointed him. The world is an organism that's destined for judgment. And when things within the world exist that are destined for eternal life, it recognizes them as foreign bodies, which they are. They don't belong here. Thus, the world attacks the bride of Christ just as an immune system might attack a virus. It marks the cells, and then it seeks to destroy those cells. Jesus continues on in verse 20 in John 15. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus, as our Lord and Savior, as our King, he was mocked for death by the world. 
As such, so are we. To get to King David, the giants had to fight through the men of David. To try to get to Jesus, Satan and his devils will fight the people who belong to Christ. But we must not be discouraged, and we must certainly not think that we are doing something wrong simply because the world hates us. All four Gospels prepare us for this. We've already heard from John. Let's hear from the other three. Matthew 10, 22. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Luke 6, 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And then Mark 13, 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, we must be sure to note the qualifiers of all three of these verses. What are these people hated for? For his namesake on the account of the Son of Man. Not just for any reason, right? Just because people hate you doesn't mean you're saved, right? We need to use wisdom and discernment in this. It's not because you're rude, selfish, pompous, uh, arrogant, mean-spirited, or whatever. You're hated because of the gospel. You're hated because you proclaim his word faithfully, because you live righteously in accordance to his word. So we must be wise in this. In all things, we must love others, even when they hate us. We need to recognize our primary enemy is not other people. Our enemy is the devil and his angels, and they will use people to come at us. They will use people to harm us and to hurt us, so we pray for them. We love for them. We are gentle with them, and we are patient with them, but we don't compromise the message. So we, we try to reason with them as much as possible, and we can always do more than what we think we can. We can prepare the meal as well as we can. We can neatly arrange it on the plate to make it as appetizing as, it, as we can, but they will still look at it, some of them, and they will still spit it out. The very word of God, when read, will cause people to hate you. Just consider the 71-year-old pastor in England a couple weeks ago, arrested for reading Genesis 1, speaking on the sanctity of marriage in a public area. He was arrested because it was considered homophobic. It was hate speech. And not once did he mention anything about homosexuality. He was just talking about how God created man, um, mankind as male and female, how man and the woman were to leave their parents and to come as one flesh. That got him arrested. In this hatred, though, as the four Gospels make clear, if we endure, if we persevere for his name's sake, we will be saved. But then we also need to recognize, well, what happens if we don't endure, if we don't persevere? Well, the implication is, is clear. Salvation isn't there. But thankfully, as hard as this might be, as, as discouraging as this might be, because this is not easy, we do not go at this fight alone. David, having been marked for death and having been fighting for quite some time, he has grown weary of the battle, weary to the point where he is less capable in his fighting than he was before. I mean, fighting Philistines, fighting anyone is an exhausting process, especially if you have to deal with ones that are bigger than you. And if you recall David, David was not known for his size. Well, I mean, he was known as shorter. He wasn't known as being big. He was known for being short. So he grew weary, yet in the hour of need, Yahweh was faithful to deliver and to preserve the lamp of Israel. And he did so by sending David help. David was called to battle the enemies of God, but not to do it alone. The same was true for Jesus. 
when Jesus took this, the Son of God, took on flesh, his humanity grew weary. For as Jesus was battling the devil and the temptations of our world, his flesh weakened and tired. But this was a necessary process for the Son of God to undergo, so that he may be an example and a help for his people. Hebrews 2, 17, 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Yet Jesus was not alone in his temptations. And as Yahweh ensured Abishai was there to help David, Yahweh ensured that his son in the flesh had assistance too when he needed Matthew 4, 11, following the 40 days of fasting and then the three temptations, God sends angels to minister to Jesus. And then again in the garden on the night of his betrayal in the midst of prayer, Luke twenty two forty three, and there appeared to him, Jesus, an angel from heaven, strengthening him. If the Son of God in the flesh grew weary, living faithfully and doing the will of God, how much more so will we? When we do tire and when we do weaken from resisting temptation and enduring scorn, or when we suffer the many afflictions this world throws at us, whether as a result of our sin or not, we must understand and we must remember we are not alone. We have help. First, we have the triune God. Isaiah 40, verses 28 through 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God gives power to the weak to those who wait for Yahweh, that is, those who call upon his name and trust in his word. And God does not grow tired as we do. Yes, to be clear, Jesus did in his humanity, but his divinity did not. And in his resurrected state, his flesh has been glorified and does not grow weary. We also have the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us. John 14, 16, 17, Jesus is speaking about how he must go away in order that the Spirit, the Helper, may come and dwell within us. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. It is by the Spirit that we are strengthened, that we are edified and built up as a body of believers, not only as individuals, but as a church. Acts 9.31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. How did the church multiply? Not because it feared the authorities or because it feared the plague or it feared what others may think of their practices or what they did or said, but simply because the church feared God. And then in the Spirit, they were comforted. Though the second person of the Trinity, Jesus had to go away to send the Spirit to dwell within us, 
Jesus is still interceding for us as our great high priest to help us in the time of need. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we have the fullness of God, literally the fullness, each person of the Trinity helping us out. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. And beyond that, we even have more help, his angels. Hebrews 1.14, are they, that's angels, God's angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? In your prayers, in your time of need, you can ask God to send angels to help you. That's perfectly appropriate. You don't need to. When you ask God to help you, he will help you by any means which he needs to. He'll take care of the details. But it's okay to ask for angels. They, they are created in part to serve God's people. And there's more. God is not silent to us in our suffering. He's not silent to our pain. He's not silent about our darkest moments. We have his word. He has spoken all that we need for this age and time. Romans 15.4, Paul writes, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So how do we have hope when we're suffering? How do we have hope when we have fallen, tripped, stumbled? How do we have hope when we don't understand why we are feeling or why we are being afflicted the way we are? We endure and we are encouraged because we have His Word. God has spoken for this purpose, to give us hope. You neglect his word, you're neglecting your hope. You're neglecting your joy. You're neglecting your endurance and your encouragement. Matthew 4.4, 4, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is in response to the first temptation that the devil has thrown at him in the desert. Um, and he's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. Some of you are unwilling to eat the word of God as it's meant to be. Let me give you an illustration. You go to the doctor. The doctor says, you need to change your diet. You go, okay, what do I need to eat? You need to eat broccoli. So you go home. You cook some broccoli. But you don't like the way it tastes, the texture, the plainness of it. It just doesn't, it doesn't appeal to the senses as the other foods do. So you take the broccoli, you dip it in cheese, and then you deep fry it. And then you eat it. And then you're like, I can eat this. I can eat this all day, every day. This is great. Problem is, though, when you do that, you defeat the whole purpose of eating broccoli. And you're essentially not eating broccoli anymore. It's just an oversized cheese curd. <laughs> you need to eat the Word of God like you need to eat that broccoli. Unadulterated, raw, pure. And you might say, well, it's not tasty that way. I don't like eating it like that. Well, you must discipline yourself. It's not easy to say no to the flesh. This is why Paul, in all of his letters, and, and not just Paul, but all the commands, discipline yourself, practice, put off, put on. You have to act against your natural self. You must crucify yourself daily. So pray. Because if you eat anything that's dipped in cheese and deep fried, it may taste good, but it will not save your soul. It will not save your body. Your gluttonous appetite ultimately will weigh you down to hell. You must learn to receive the word of God plainly. A thousand qualifications might make the word of God more palatable, but the power of the word then is stripped and replaced with vanity and futility. 
Let me give you an example of what this might look like. You read a devotion every day, more than you do the Word of God. You read the devotion because the devotion is warm and cuddly, and it appeals to your self-esteem rather than your holiness. You don't need self-esteem. You need Christ's esteem. You don't need self-confidence. You need confidence in Christ. And I know you're probably like, what do you mean? You don't need anything that is of yourself. Scripture is clear. Deny it. That includes your self-esteem. Pursue holiness, pursue Christ, and you will have all the confidence and all the respect you need about who you are in light of who God is for all of eternity. Focus on that. That is your main concern, not what society thinks about you, what society tells you you ought to think about yourself. What matters is your holiness. Abundant life and eternal joy, which we're all seeking, right? We all want the joy. We all want the abundant life. To find that in the midst of this life, you must be obedient to God's word. Because when you're obedient to God's word, that is when God will reveal himself to you. He will not reveal, to, reveal himself to you outside of obedience to his word. If you're in sin, he's not going to come to you. He's not. Now, in his grace and his patience, he's going to allow you opportunities to repent. But if you want to know the joy of this life that is to be found, you must be obedient to his word. And perhaps the best part of the word of God is that it's not going anywhere. It's, a, it's permanent for all of eternity. First Peter 1 Peter 1.24-25, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The French philosopher Voltaire famously once said, 100 years from now, the Bible will be a museum piece. Well, 100 years after his death, the French Bible Society purchased his home and put the headquarters in it. The word of God, regardless of the views of society, is going nowhere. Kingdoms, empires, countries like America will rise and they will fall. The opinions of society will come and go, but the word of God will always remain. We must not abandon the word of God. It will not change, and what has been given to us is sufficient. And then in light of his word, we are given a very precious help for our walk, each other. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now please note, this gathering, this doing all this one another happens when the word of Christ is dwelling among us, which means Christ himself is dwelling among us because you can't have Christ without his word. Right? If, if, if we don't have his word, Christ isn't with us at all. But he is with us if his word is dwelling within us and we are obedient to it, if we keep the commands of Scripture. So with him among us, we are able to encourage one another. We are able to teach one another. We are able to do so with gratitude and we admonish one another. I know we don't like that word, right? Because it means we rebuke, we warn one another, we call out sins, we We point out the flaws in our holiness to one another, but it's exactly what we are called to do. When we admonish one another, we're essentially pointing out the giants that are seeking to slay us. It's an act of love. Say, hey, that giant in your life is on the horizon, or that lion in your life is on the horizon. Be careful, lest you fall. And we do so in love, right? We do so not like we don't take the book and we say, 
hey, there's a giant out there, and throw it at them and walk away. No, we say, hey, there's a, we're like Abishai. We come to David's aid and we fight the giant with that person. We come to David's aid and we help them escape the situation that they're in. We get in the pit with them. We get dirty with them if we must. That is what we're called to do. We're not called to abandon one another. That's not faithful proclamation of God's word involves proclaiming it, but then also serving, submitting to one another out of reverence. And we do this because we ourselves, each and every one of us, we need the same kind of help, right? No one's above the other. We all have our flaws. We all need to be called out. We all need to be admonished, and we all need to be encouraged. So we walk together. And, this, and we do this as we gather, and we gather because the day is approaching. In other words, death is coming for us, or if the Lord hastens, the day of judgment Hebrews 10, 24, 25, perhaps the two most controversial verses of the past year. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need one another, and we are made for each other. Assurance of our salvation is found within the body of Christ as we do life together, as we remind one another who we are and what God has done for us as we keep the sacraments. You will not find assurance of salvation outside of the body of Christ. It's not there. Only within the body do you see it. And the fruit of the gospel is found in the gathering. For as we minister to one another, that is, as we serve one another, we see the fruits of our labors in the work of God through us. Joy in life is found doing the will of God. And the will of God is for his people to gather regularly and to serve one another out of reverence. Right? There's no asterisk there. There's no exceptions. If you're lacking joy in your life, ask yourself, am I part of church? Am I serving others? Am I ministering? Am I allowing God to use me for his kingdom? Because that's where the joy is. You want joy in your life. Gather with other brothers and sisters in, in Christ and seek to outdo one another in honor. Therefore, whatever trial you are in now, whatever suffering you are enduring, whatever fight you are caught up in, go to Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit who dwells within you, even if you have no words to say. Go to him. Rest in him. Be strengthened by him. And you do this by listening to uh, theologically rich music that points you to uh, the truths of the scripture and, and the music, the way that's written, it sticks with you because you have a melody attuned for it. Read his word. Memorize his word, right? His word is a sword. And sometimes you're going to find yourself in a situation where you can't Google a verse to help you in that situation. So memorize it. Meditate on it. Pray the Psalms. Or pray the prayers of faithful saints who have suffered like you, like the prayers from piercing heaven. And of course, gather with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you part of a life group? Sunday's great. We need Sundays. But we also need other gatherings during the week. We need our life groups. We need to be serving. We need to be connected with one another. We need to be part of the body. And we do all this because of our faith in God. The very faith that delivered David on the battlefield is the same faith that delivers us. Our passage this morning is in the first half of the final section of 2 Samuel, a section that summarizes the reign of David and follows a chiastic um, structure. I have a slide. 
um, which at its center highlights the faith of David in Yahweh, while at the same time continuing to contrast King David with King Saul. Already we have seen this contrast between David and Saul in, in two ways. David's faith in Yahweh, as we talked about last week, allowed him to act righteously and serve as a mediator to bring about reconciliation for one of Saul's sins. Then today we have seen God deliver David once again from the battlefield, from the hand of the Philistines, unlike Saul, who was slain on the battlefield by the hand of the Philistines for his unfaithfulness. And then next week we are going to look at a poem that David has written, confessing his faith in Yahweh and how Yahweh has delivered David time and time again from the hand of death. And just as David was able to have success on the battlefield in the face of these Philistine giants, so our King Jesus was able to defeat his enemy, our enemy, death for us because of his righteousness and obedience to God. Paul, Romans 5, 18, 19, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's, this is Adam, disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's, that's Jesus, by his obedience, the many will be made righteous. Just as Abishai delivered David from the giant Philistine in David's moment of weakness, so Jesus delivers us from our great enemy too. Though unlike Abishai, Jesus gave his life. And Jesus didn't give his life for his king, as Abishai was willing to do. Jesus gave his life for those who were lesser than him. And far worse than that, those who were his enemies. Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And Jesus did so by shedding his own blood. Galatians 1.4, who gave himself, that's Christ, for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And then Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. All of this, all of Jesus' blood that was spilt was done so, so that we may have new life with him in holiness being reconciled to the Father and filled with the Holy Spirit. And though the wages of sin is death, as Romans 6.23 tells us, eternal life is the free gift of God in Christ Jesus. And it's not that eternal life did not cost anything. Rather, as we have already seen, eternal life costs the blood of his son. But, as his, but at his expense, it is offered to us freely by his grace through faith. Ephesians 2.8.10 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, right? Not for laziness, not for idleness, not for sin, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the purpose of your saving. It's not for your happiness, it's for good works. The grace of Jesus and his saving work moves us to put our faith in him where salvation and eternal life is found. The key for David's success was faithfulness in Yahweh, which is rooted in his knowledge of Yahweh. In like manner, the key for Jesus, while in the flesh, to withstand the devil and temptation and to conquer death on our behalf was knowledge of the Father. Think of Matthew 4 and the temptations. How did Jesus navigate that? With the word of God. The word of God is essentially knowledge of the Holy One. It was the divine intimacy between the Son and the Father that allowed Jesus to live as he did and to offer himself up as he did, spotless. Without it, he would have failed. Without it, he would not be God. Therefore, 
Let us not trust anything of this world or of ourselves. Let us not boast in our might. Let us not boast in our wisdom. Let us not be prideful or arrogant like Saul was, but let us be humble and faithful like David. Let us not fear the mighty or the wise of this world. For all knowledge anchored in this world, all of it is futile and vain. But knowledge and trust of God is eternal life and will deliver us from this world to the conquering of our great enemy, death. Jeremiah 9, 23, 24, thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In this, excuse me, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Proverbs 21.30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Proverbs 3.5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. So we must boast in Christ. In Psalm 34.2, a psalm of David, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. 2 Corinthians 10.17, Paul writes, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we do this for this. For the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, he or she will be blessed. I'll end, with, I'll end with the letters in Revelation. Consider how Jesus ends his letters to the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. I'm just going to read the ending of each of these letters. To the church of Ephesus, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The church is Smyrna. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The church in Pergamon. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So you get a secret from God. This is between you and him. The church in Thyatira, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to churches. The church in Sardis, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The church in Philadelphia, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. Finally, the church in Laodicea, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, in all of these churches, the one who conquers is the one who repents, is the one who is zealous, is the one who does not fear, is the one who holds fast to faith, not simply in profession, but in obedience, right? This isn't when Jesus, when Scripture says, hold fast to the faith that you confess, that means obedience. To hold fast is to be obedient. They're not just saying, well, as long as you say it and just don't say, I don't believe in him, you're good. No, you say it and then you do it. You hold fast to it. And please understand this as well. A call to obedience 
is not legalism, right? The world loves to do that. Well, you're calling us to obedience. That's legalism. No, it's not. The call to obedience is faithfulness. It's righteousness. It's holiness. It's knowledge of the Holy One, which means it's abundant life. No obedience, no abundant life. No obedience, no joy. Obedience is salvation. Not that it's the means of which we obtain salvation, but rather obedience is the mark of salvation. Therefore, if there's no obedience, you have no mark of salvation. If there's no mark of salvation, what salvation do you have? The marks of those who are saved are those who have been freed from the power of sin. And when you're freed from the power of sin, you live righteously. If we trust Yahweh, as David trusted Yahweh in all things, and this includes, all right, when we trust Yahweh in all things, this includes that when we do sin, when we do fail in obedience, that we trust the gospel is true, that we can confess our sin, that the work of Christ is enough, that we believe that it is finished upon the cross, that if we confess our sin and repent, then we can walk confidently, we can continue on walking in righteousness, knowing that Christ has covered us and has imputed his righteousness upon us. So if we trust that and we trust God in this way, if we put our faith in Christ, then we have no need to fear death. We have no need to fear any other giants of this world. For just as the Son was raised from the dead, so too shall those who look to the Son and believe in him, and they shall be raised at the end of days. And as we wait for our moment of death, for our moment of death and for his return, Christ will hold us fast. A work that he can only do in us if we put our faith in him. And it's not meant to be burdensome because we're not alone. We are in this together. Christ is coming for a pure bride. He's coming for a body, not for individuals. He's coming for people who have loved one another. And they love one another because of the love that they have for God. This is a faith that is shared with our brothers and sisters in Christ, both here locally and globally. And it is a faith that we now publicly affirm as we enter into communion. Lee is going to come up and 